Kevin Steinberg, and you're listening to Frankly Kev. This is the Everyday Hero series, where I speak with people who have faced one or even more of life's many challenges. We talk about what happened, how they got through it, and what they did to survive, and maybe even thrive. On today's episode, Saving My Voice, A Cancer Story, my guest discusses her four-year journey that culminated last year during COVID lockdown of finding out that she had adenoid cystic carcinoma. This is a rare head and neck cancer. She also discusses tracheostomies, cryoblation, conflicting medical options, radiation, treatments, alternative therapies, the importance of support groups and research, and the perfect storm she had of being retired, having a slow-moving cancer, and solid health care, plus much, much more. Please welcome my very special guest, Karen Kerr. Karen, thank you very much for being on Frankly Kev and a part of the Everyday Hero series. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very uh, flattered and honored to be here. You're welcome. So, we're going to dive right in. You have or you had cancer? I have cancer. And what cancer is it? It's uh, adenoid cystic carcinoma of the subglottis, which means it's a cancer that was located immediately below my uh, vocal cords, my left vocal cord to be precise. Even before this was diagnosed and you found out what you had, what was going on that you figured "Mm, something's not right in my body? About five, well, it would be closer to six years ago now, I began to notice uh, soreness around my larynx. And... um, I noticed when I would sing, it would get sore and irritated. And I thought, well, this is not normal. And uh, talked to my doctor and uh, they did an ultrasound and said, oh, everything looks fine. Maybe a couple of little insignificant thyroid nodules. Uh, Nothing to be concerned about. And uh, it persisted. So I asked a different doctor. he, he looked me over and examined me and uh, sent me for a CT scan. And that was also uh, inconclusive. Nothing was noted. Soreness persisted. You know, you always hear. I always had in the back of my mind cancer because you always hear soreness in the throat could be cancerous. I never have smoked a day in my life. So, I, you know, I didn't have any of the typical risk factors for having throat cancer. So that I guess that probably made it seem unlikely to people who knew me. But interesting, right from the beginning, you didn't just shrug it off and think, oh, I'm under the weather. You thought this might be something more serious in the back of your mind. Yeah, yeah. And I kept asking and I kept asking and I kept being checked out and kept being checked out. And finally, my family doctor in exasperation sent me to an ENT and he scoped, did a bronchoscope. Uh, to look down there, didn't see anything. That was uh, almost three years ago. And there was most assuredly something happening then because I've been told by several experts that this has probably been with me for 10 years. And uh, But that ENT, local ENT, did not detect anything at that time. In fact, he said, oh, you have dysphonia, which turns out to be um, like vocal cord um, distress of some kind and sent me for speech therapy. <laughs> well, they're trying to do something. <laughs> they're trying to do something. It was a complete waste of time and I knew it. And I had this young woman that I felt like had probably seen three people before me 
and she was a nice young woman and everything, but it did literally nothing. <laughs> so you, you were know, a good sport. <laughs> yeah, I, we we persisted, and every physical I had, I'd complain that I have soreness. I have soreness. I can't sing. My voice cracks and breaks up. Um, to that point, though, I had no um, breathing difficulties that I was aware of. You didn't uh, have breathing difficulties. I did not. Got it. Okay. Um, and I, I have since learned from my thoracic surgeon that the trachea is extremely flexible and will flex to a common, you think of it as a rigid pipe. Right. But apparently yeah. it is not. Huh. And he said, you accommodated and accommodated for such a long time that you didn't even know that something was growing and growing and growing there. Apparently it has some ability to compensate or something. Uh, because it wasn't until um, February 2020 that I I got a cold and I just could not shake it. And I came out of that cold wheezing and wheezing and wheezing. And it was the middle of March and I'd been to my doctor a couple, well, we talked because now we're no longer seeing each other because it's COVID, right? So this is a year and a half ago, March. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. And I was COVID tested right away. The negative. I, I have probably had 15 COVID tests easily in the last 18 months. Wow. <laughs> because every time you go to a doctor now, you you know, especially doctors that are looking down your nose and down your throat, you get COVID tested over and over and over. I can tell you all kinds of COVID tests, <laughs> uh, all the way to the, to the Nazi nurse that leaned in the car and grabbed the back of my head and shoved me into the 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 swab are you serious and i was yelling at the top of my lungs my husband was sitting there looking at me like oh what's happening yeah In, into the nose tickler yeah and she took the back <laughs> oh, of my yeah. head and shoved well anyway I, I, i've had it all i've had every covid test known <laughs> kind of assault but okay <laughs> so anyway uh, at that point i said look folks i am seriously struggling i am now wheezing going up and down the stairs i cannot breathe I am struggling all the time. Well, my doctor gave me inhalers, several different kinds. And you were never asthmatic or anything like that? No, in my life, yeah. never. Yeah. And, of course, they did this much. And, and finally, I called the ENT I had seen two years earlier and said, look, would you just scope me again? I, this is not right. Well, I go to his office now. This is the end of June of 2020. So now the story... We're about five years into it, correct? Yes. Wow. Yes. Good and for I you. have been sick. I have been sick since the end of March now, without unremittingly. And he he scopes me, and he turns white as a sheet. Oi. And he could not hide his response. He attempted to. Usually, they're supposed to have a poker face. He attempted to. <laughs> He said, there's something there that's not supposed to be there. At least he was and, honest. And then he immediately, he immediately said the most ridiculous statement ever made. Oh, but I'm sure it's not cancer. I'm sure it's not cancer. You can't say that. And but... I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, right, right. Yeah. I don't believe that for a second. Uh, my initial response after the horror, realizing, yes, there's actually something in there. I had not seen it yet. He did not show me any pictures. Was Finally, you know, finally we can figure out why this woman cannot breathe. 
And he sent me immediately for a CT scan, which came back, um, you know, suspicious of neoplasm, which means, you know, suspicious a tumor. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. And he immediately sent me to a doctor in a neighboring town, a larger city. And that was a really a grotesque experience. Um, I was scoped in his office after waiting several hours in a freezing room. And he's, what they do when they scope you is that they spray. Have you been scoped? Uh, my biopsy, they sprayed something. And it was like as if I was never sprayed. Oh, yeah. I was intubated for something else. I was gagging the whole the, the whole time. They had to yeah. go look at something in my, in my chest. I forget what you call the procedure and do the, the, the bubble test to see about strokes and stuff. And the whole time I was awake and it's like I was choking yeah. on this pipe down Very my throat. Yeah. Well, of course. Yeah. Yeah. You, you were choking. Yeah. But anyway, he sprayed something and then he left for such a long time. It wore off and then he scoped me and my my throat filled up with mucus and I, I strangulated and almost passed out in the office. And it was just a horrific experience. And he, finally, I see the first view of this thing. He took pictures. He got pictures despite the fact that I was under duress. And I finally saw this uh, rather horrific looking site, this large bloodshot tumor that was filling about 80% of my trachea. I had about the size of a, of a straw that I was breathing through. A woman of my size has a trachea that's about three quarters of an inch. And, and this tumor was probably a half to five eighths of an inch. So it's blocking a lot of it. Most of it. So it took five years of all of this trial and error to finally see something and someone say something's going on. Yeah. Even though I kept saying, hey, something's happening. Something's not right. Something's not right. Good for you. And we have to, we have to be like that. Yeah, yeah. But it, it ultimately still was not detected until I was almost incapacitated. Yeah. And then everybody got very excited. Now all of this delay and, oh, you're fine, you're fine. Now everybody's real excited. And this doctor says, this is over the 4th of July weekend. This is the day before the 4th of July weekend last year. And the first words out of his mouth were, we're going to do a, a tracheostomy and a biopsy. I was expecting the words trache uh, biopsy. I was not expecting the words tracheostomy. Now, tracheostomy is also like a tracheotomy, and I, I looked I lo I looked this up because <laughs> they kind of used interchangeably. So it's an opening created in the front of uh, your neck, and a tube is inserted uh, into the windpipe to help with breathing. Is that correct? Yeah, right about here. Got it. Got it. I okay. have a friend with the same thing that he has left right now. And you didn't want this? I guess I would have considered it if he had said something other than what he said next. I said, well, how long will I have this? And he said, uh, probably permanently. And it would affect speech, singing, everything. Yeah, you, you, you press here to speak. It's the people who have a uh, like that box. Well, now that's a, that's when you have a, a total laryngectomy. They remove the voice oh. box. The tracheostomy just simply means you have to close this in order to force air through your vocal cords. Now, if they take out the vocal cords, then you still have this, possibly a fake voice box. Which you press there. Yes, because you have to close your breathing apparatus in order to force air up through that apparatus or through your vocal cords. That voice fox, that's your vocal cords. 
Yes, and it's uh, and it's the oxygen coming up from your lungs that vibrated that creates sound. And if you're breathing here, you're no longer vibrating the vocal cords. Right. Got it. Got it. So that if that had happened, that would have meant okay, uh, no going on boats because if you fall off the boat, you will drown instantly. You can't seal that. Water's just filling up in there. Yeah, yeah. You can't seal it. Uh, no swimming. Uh, no singing for sure. Um, difficulty with swallowing. Generally, there's a lot of swallowing difficulties. And of course, speech is, is extremely difficult. So now, because of the type of cancer you had, which is slow moving, this gave you time to say no and investigate other procedures, treatments, and so forth, correct? Yes. Now, nobody wanted to allow me that time because they were so afraid of seeing that level of blockage. But I said, folks, I've been doing this for five years. <laughs> you think this is a fire alarm. <laughs> I've been doing this a long time. I can do it a few more months, okay? Well, we figured this out. You Good know? for you for standing up. Yeah, well, we're just we're just not going to do that. So I called on Monday morning. It was, uh, it was 4th of July and told the hospital, I'm not coming. Cancel my appointment. And then, so what did you do from that point on? So then I... Uh, my son works in the uh, health industry, and he helped me get uh, an appointment at Mayo Clinic. You had an in. That's great. I did. I did. And frankly, COVID played very well into this because uh, a lot of cancer doctors were not seeing patients like they had been. It happened to me, I remember. Yeah. Yeah, they're postponing treatments, and I got, man, I got right in within a week there. Good for you. And uh, they examined me. We did another scope. That scope was beautiful compared to the last one. It was a beautiful experience. It was an angelic experience. <laughs> <laughs> it was the best. It was fabulous scoping. Uh, and I was terrified because of what my last experience had been. So now I've learned that there are good and bad scopers. <laughs> because I've been scoped about eight or ten times by now. Twelve times maybe. So I can tell you all about the all different ways people scope people. But that was very, very good. Uh, I, I like the doctor. I thought he was great. But his almost immediate words are, most people with this have total laryngectomy. He, he said, but we didn't know yet what kind of cancer it was. It could have been squamous cell. It could have been all kinds of So they hadn't done the biopsy yet. No. They just knew it was cancerous, yes. malignant and cancerous. Yes. And yeah. they were willing to do a fine needle biopsy, which would avoid the tracheostomy uh, because they passed through with a needle. But I didn't like the total laryngectomy talk. And, and my backup plan had been to go to Cleveland Clinic right from the get-go. I was going to go to both places anyway. Yeah. And I went ahead with the appointment that I'd already set with an ENT, a cancer ENT at Cleveland Clinic. Where, where are you located again? Where do you live? I live in northern Indiana, not far from Notre Dame. Everybody, I think, knows where Notre Dame is. So a lot of your care and these centers you actually had to fly to, correct? Drive. Dri drive. Yeah. We drove. Okay. It was seven hours to Mayo and it's four hours to Cleveland. Not bad. Yeah. yeah and it was summertime. So we made the trip to Cleveland. He thought that, yeah, we could get a biopsy without uh, tracheostomy. Road trip, and, shotgun. <laughs> yep, yep. And uh, then I said, okay, great, we'll go ahead. 
they, they looked at my scans. The radiologist came back and said, nope, I won't biopsy her. It's too scary. She could bleed out. She could, it could swell up. I won't do it. And I was like, oh, great. Okay. So it's back to Mayo Clinic because they were willing to find needle biopsy me. Isn't it interesting what one doctor will say or is willing to do is night and day from someone else and you just have to look for someone to get that yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we up, back up to Mayo we went. I got the fine needle. Uh, they did seven passes. I was awake. Did you feel it? it? Really... Did you feel it? Oh, you bet. Boy, I had, yeah. I had mine in my neck and I did three passes and I've never, ever felt anything like that in my life, and I never want to again. <laughs> yes, yes. But I was I was psyched for it. I just kept laying there thinking, this or tracheostomy, this or tracheostomy. I did lots of breathing. Good for you. I did lots of meditation, and we got through it, and I didn't swell up, and I didn't bleed out. Awesome. And, and we were beautiful. And then we got our diagnosis. Right, ACC. ACC. And so... Did they know yeah. very much, or did that uh, then send you to the internet for, for research? Uh, it sent me to the internet because he called me and said what it was. He said, this is extremely rare, as you well know, and even rarer in the trachea. I guess there's like 80 cases a year in the trachea in the U.S. Yeah, which is, they have very little to go on. Yeah, and he said, total laryngectomy, I... Sob my eyes out, of course, and we went home. <laughs> I said, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, you've told me this is slow growing. I believe you. I'm going home, and we're going to do some more work. And this was like the middle of July of last year. So I sat in the sofa for the next two weeks with the computer on my lap, and uh, I, my husband found uh, the uh, ACC support group online. And I got in touch. the Facebook one or the standalone one that has their own website. Uh, the Facebook one. Got it. Which is where I think we met. Yeah, yeah. But he, he found he found the website. Yeah, and then we got in there, and I met uh, Pascal Reich, and and I met all kinds of other lovely people. And she had me call a, a woman in Chicago who she and I are past friends now. Had the same cancer in the same location. 10 years ago. That's great that you can go somewhere online, just sit at home and put your information in there and your questions in there. Someone's bound to get back to you. Yes. And lots of people did. And lots of options were put forward. Um, the, the name that kept coming up was a doctor, a thoracic surgeon in Boston, as, as someone that people even internationally were coming to see or doctors internationally were connecting with him. I, at the same time, I called the um, University of Michigan, Sloan Kettering, had uh, video reviews. I sent my slides, my discs, and everything to to those three different um, institutions. And also, the, we have a cancer center right here in this town. I went to see them as well. So they were able to send you a lot via email electronically, but also a lot of your appointments and meetings were yeah. through yes. Zoom? From, from there, they were. Um, then I was doing a lot of Zoom stuff. And I, again, bang, 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 I got right into people because of COVID. That's great. Good. And, and it really collapsed the amount of time it took. Um, I heard uh, partial laryngectomy from one, total laryngectomy from two others. But the guy in Boston said, come on out. I think we can do something here. Ah. He said, 
either resection or um, cryoblation is, is, were the two, two things that he offered up. He said, I don't, I don't see a reason for you to have your larynx removed. What's involved in resectioning and what's involved in cryoblation? So resection would be where they would take the actual trachea. They saw it. It's really gross sounding. It's thought <laughs> up and shorten it and sew it back together with the tumor removed. And you, a person will heal okay? Yep. Wow. Great. Yep. It's a very long healing process, um, but it sure beats the socks off of uh, Right, which you don't heal from. <laughs> right, and there there might be <laughs> some scar tissue, but it's the better way to go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. if you're eligible for it. Right, and he said, "I will not know until uh, we do a bronchoscopy under sedation." He said, "I will not know for sure if that's a possibility for you or not." But that was enough options for us to make the decision we were going to go to Boston, and so we packed our bags and went to Boston. Sure enough, he did the procedure. Um, they decided I'm not a candidate for resection. The tumor was laying right against my vocal cord. He could not have gotten it out. Couldn't have gotten a clean, what they love, the clean margins. They love their clean margins. I mean, I feel like that is the hokiest thing ever. I'm sorry. <laughs> if some doctor here just... How about slim margins? How about any margins is better than what's going on? <laughs> hey, here's the deal. Uh, by this time, somebody has stuck a needle in my tumor seven times. Somebody has sawed it off with freezing ice. They've spread cancer cells all over my body. Come on. Clean margin? What the heck is that? <laughs> what is that? Anyway. Yeah. But he, they, he had an a ENT, um, another a pulmonologist. He's a thoracic surgeon and yet another thoracic surgeon in the room. That room was so packed with doctors that, and they all agreed she is not a candidate for resection. So you went there to find out that nothing was going to happen. Yes. But I was a candidate for cryoablation, the freezing on of the tumor, because he, he had told me before I went under sedation, if I was a candidate for that, that they would do that to open up my airway enough. They, they couldn't get the whole thing. They cannot freeze the trachea or they destroy it. They can only take uh, up to a certain distance away from the trachea without destroying the trachea. So they freeze it while it's in there? Yeah, while they're, they're down in a tube, I'm asleep. And they, then they pass this thing down there that freezes the tumor. He took 40% of the tumor so that I could breathe. And so that if I were to have radiation and it would swell, I wouldn't lose my airway. Interesting. So that procedure took about 40 minutes. Uh, I came out. He gave the news to my husband. My husband was crushed. He wanted the clean margin. He wanted the resection. I did not. <laughs> I didn't want that. Because <laughs> you have to live through the other side yeah, of yeah. that. I was, I was, I was ecstatic <laughs> with the outcome. I could breathe immediately. I took my first deep breath in years. First breath when I came out of... Uh, Literally, the first breath. deep breath in years. Yes, the first deep breath. And it felt wonderful. Oh, and great. I recovered in you know two days from that procedure. Went to see the uh, uh, radiologist and the medical oncologist out there in Boston. And they both were, oh, we're going to give you uh, IMRT radiation. 
uh, and we're going to do cisplatin uh, chemotherapy. And I said, you know, I've read that cisplatin in most chemo does not work for ACC. What is your opinion about that? Oh, yeah, well, it, it doesn't really, but less than the 10% chance it could help. May as well try something. Okay, you're going to destroy my liver and you're going <laughs> to... And you're probably going to take out my hearing and and for less than 10% chance. And, and then I said, okay, uh, I, I would go for the radiation, but you have a proton center here. Could I have proton radiation instead and spare my esophagus and my spine? Because uh, IMRT radiation, the nature of that is, it passes completely through your tissues, goes out the back, taking with it everything on the way. I mean, they do focus it as much as they possibly can, but it is a, a radiation that passes through your body. And the proton stops right where it's targeted. Stops short, okay. yes. And they said, no, they save their proton radiation for children and, and adults with brain cancer. And I said, do you have a shortage of <laughs> bots? Am I, I mean, I would never want to take a child's bot. I'm an old lady, you know. There's got to be a line for me, old ladies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where's the old lady to you? Oh. I'll wait as long as I have to. Good for you. Uh, but no, it, it turns out, I mean, I actually ended up talking to some uh, a radiologist in Virginia, and he said, no, it's political. And they're associated with a large university for which I will not name, and they've set these standards. And it has nothing to do with shortage of spots. It's all politics. And I, I appealed to my wonderful thoracic surgeon to override this decision. He said, no, I will not. I love this. You're just tenacious. Like you just keep driving and driving and driving, yeah. and not taking taking no and trying to go around, trying to detour around. I love this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I kind of always been that way. <laughs> So this was this wasn't a new skill for me. <laughs> so anyway, uh, and, and then we saw another cancer center while we were there, and they were excellent, but it was the same script. Okay, and I said I don't want IMRT. I'm I'm going home, packing bags. Goodbye. And now I can breathe. You know, now now you've made some measure of improvement. I will go home again and begin to study my next step. All these visits and all these specialists and all these procedures, is this all covered? I do have amazing health insurance. Was this all covered or did you also have to put out some, some funds? I think I've paid 200 bucks for everything I've had done so far. It's like you're in Canada. <laughs> it's called Medicare. <laughs> you, have good, you have good insurance. Marvelous. <laughs> See, I've been self-employed for 25 years and I had crap insurance, but I finally got old enough to be on Medicare and it, it paid for I had uh, six second opinions, paid for them all. Good for you. And I've talked to people who've been charged $1,500 for second opinion, $2,000, $3,000 is free. Now, I did a lot of alternative things and all that was out of pocket and I, we've paid a pretty penny. You needed to satisfy yourself and you knew that that would be out of your own pocket and the health insurance wouldn't cover and you went forward with that and so that was your own decision. Yeah. And we'll get to that. Yeah. So we're back home again. Um, I'm breathing well. I'm feeling better. Um, uh, I, I go back to work on the research. And now I'm ready to begin seriously into my alternative things. And the starting point of that was to just look at over my overall health 
you know what amazes me? I am I am now six weeks into this thing. Not a single person has said, well, how is your overall health? And should we do some blood work? And they did pre-surgery regular blood work, mm-hmm. but nothing that mm-hmm. would pick up anything unusual, you know? And so I ordered my own blood work and, you know, began to look at the rest of my health because I knew that I had things that were not optimal, you know, started to look at the gut health and the diet. And I knew I had some weight to lose. And uh, uh, my initial foray was uh, into keto. Uh, I'm not keto anymore. I think that was a fine starting place, but it's not something I think anyone should stay on for any length of time. I've tried it. I know what you mean. Yeah, I think it was a fine start. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it got me into thinking really seriously about restricting certain food categories for purpose. And, and I did drop some decent amount of weight that way. And, uh, I began IV vitamin C. Um, I can't tell you if that was the ticket or not. I think it helped. Uh, I got with an integrative, uh, MD who, uh, prescribed some things like mistletoe and low-dose naltrexone, which is a whole other long, lengthy story that you probably don't want to hear about. But both of those are to reduce inflammation in the body. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty much by this time a mass of inflammation. Oh, really? Where? Oh, gut. Just, oh. Uh, you know, they'd given me antibiotics and that, that was, uh, gut was all screwed up. And it's just your natural reaction to all of this. His, yeah. Histamine responses. And, you know, I've always had, I've had some allergies, no asthma, but some mm-hmm. allergies and his mm. was out of sight. And I, my blood tests show that I still have pretty much active Epstein bar from having mononucleosis when I was 20 years old. And, you know, all these things were just happy as can be inside me, you know, and I just needed to start to tamp down the fires. <laughs> and so the uh, diet, the uh, IV vitamin C helped that. Good for you. Uh, I began taking a, a, a lot more supplements under the guidance of an integrative MD. Even some off-label drugs came into the picture. There's uh, a lot of research about drugs like metformin and, and mm-hmm. some others that, that I got on during this time. Now, is that typically for people with diabetes? Yes, it is. And that lowers your to your blood sugar, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And so that, that helps you. I don't have diabetes. Yeah. I was not yeah. taking when When I say off-label, yeah. I mean yeah. using it for a purpose other than what it was designed for. But a lot of people believe that glucose drives the growth of some cancers. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now, I think that Based on the research I've done, I think that cancer is pretty metabolically flexible. And if you cut off one avenue, it'll go for another. Mm-hmm. And if you if you think that you can be in ketosis and avoid cancer, I think the cancer, there's good research that indicates cancer can live on ketones eventually. It'll learn. It'll figure it out. Yeah. So, you know, you have to change things up. you got to block multiple what they call pathways. If you believe in metabolic treatment for cancer, which I do believe in that. I do not obviously shy away from medical treatment, but uh, I've never had a single doctor other than an integrative MD recommend any off-label drugs to me or any other treatments. In fact, I've had a lot of success with my treatments and the most I ever hear is, well, keep doing whatever you're doing. That's great. Now, did you also try things like, what about just like meditation and Reiki and walking and yoga or? All the above. Yeah. All the above, I had the great advantage that I had retired. Good for you. And I had time to do all of those. Yes, I did uh, quite a bit of Reiki. 
at least you're trying things. I mean, what percentage of people are retired who are dealing with something and aren't proactive? And it's a mindset. Good for you. Well, yeah, I have an incurable cancer, as, as you know. Yes. I have to stay ahead of this. I, I like living. <laughs> I'm fond of it. Yeah. So I, I plan to keep ahead of it. <laughs> Driven into action. Yes, yes. If the situation calls for it. Yes. Yeah. And I think the action is different for everyone. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm trying to follow the path that's working best for me. Did you ever look outside the country to see what was available and if you could afford it? Yes. I looked at carbon ion radiation. I also looked at proton. We went to Northwestern in mm -hmm. Chicago and I called three other proton centers, two other proton and one neutron center in the U.S. But carbon ion is not available in the U.S., even though it was invented here. Which is weird. Funny that. Yeah. How about that? Where's the FDA? Mayo is building a center in Florida, but it won't be open for four or five more years. There's uh, about five or six in Europe and Japan and China. And I did apply to one of them. Never heard back on the application. It would have been about sixty dollars to $80,000. Now, you know, we... And they take people from all over the world. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But... We were facing things like two-week quarantines and my husband being quarantined the whole time I was there. And it, it was just difficult. It was just that was a bad part of COVID that we really could not access that treatment. What about clinical trials? Um, I don't. I am considered uh, stage 4A, stage 400. I forget which. Meaning uh, no nodes, no metastases. They hardly ever find ACC before stage four. And have they told you that? I don't know if I knew that consciously, but I figured that out because I was tracking mine for several years. And until they found it, it had become aggressive and decided to move. Now with the second occurrence, I said to them, can you tell me what stage this is? They said, well, if we're going to categorize it, we'd say stage four. <laughs> like, Okay. <laughs> because it's just, it's so tiny. Like, you look at all those years and all those tests you went through where it was inconclusive. They're like, you feel the way you feel. Okay, we believe you, but we're not seeing anything there. Yeah, I, I don't know of anybody with ACT where they say two, three. So given the fact that I have no nodes or metastases, I don't really qualify for any clinical trials that I have found. Frankly, I'm, I'm rather alarmed at clinical trials because I don't want to be the guinea pig. And you don't know whether you are or not. That's the nature of a trial. So who, who am I really helping here by being a part of a trial? I mean, I, I want help and all, but, and mostly the cl clinical trials are for chemo. And we know how little effect they have on ACC. So no, it'd have to be something really unbelievable for me. to. I, I came this close to having Keytruda. I had it. I found it, it didn't work, but what was your experience? Because this is an, an immunotherapy, so, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes, correct, correct. Eventually, selected brachytherapy mm. for my radiation. Good for you. In California. Yeah. And with Dr. Doggett. Yeah. I don't know if you know him. I, I saw him. I was okay for it. And everyone keeps praising him on our face our Facebook group. So everyone's had success with him in brachytherapy. But please continue. So he wanted me to have Keytruda. And so I filled out the application. You do a Merck application to get funding for it because it's like what is it, $60,000 for one injection. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. Uh, and I was on laying on the table ready for my brachytherapy, which is little tiny seeds about the size, size of a piece of rice, titanium coated 
cesium is what I had. Not everybody had cesium. I had cesium. That's about the most localized type of radiation that you could get because it's like a little piece of rice or whatever that's inserted right into or right next to the tumor to blow it up. Yes. Next to, in my case, because you can't put them in an airway. Now, I had some residual tumor bed outside of the trachea as well, and that's where they put it, right under my, um, next to my thyroid. He said, your thyroid will, left gland will take a hit, and I'm, I'm on thyroid medication now. And your esophagus will probably um, have some soreness, and I did. For about three weeks, I had to drink lidocaine drink to kind of soothe that area. But that was all I had. I mean, I walked out of there after the procedure with almost no pain. And it was done in 45 minutes. And then I went home. You know, that was my radiation. <laughs> they really, I didn't do it because it was easier. I did it because uh, it was, it was treating where I had cancer rather than treating a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. And in this case, there are brachytherapies where the seeds go in and then they come back out. A lot of prostate brachytherapy is done that way. This is permanent. They're there. If you x-ray me right now, you'll see 31 little seeds right there for the rest of my life. Wow. I didn't know. They're done their job and they just stay there? Yeah. Huh. They have a you know, half-life of about six weeks. And obviously they're okay there. They don't have to be taken out. And... They really can't be. There would be no way to remove these. The, the ones that they remove, they have leads on them or something. I don't, I don't understand that process. But uh, this is the, the process that he and Dr. Uh, uh, Chang perfected like 30 or 40 years ago, and they've been testing it, and they've been doing studies on it ever since. Anyway, I'm back to the uh, Keytruda. I've got extracted here. Uh, Sorry. No, it's not your fault. They, they do CT scan live while they're putting these in so they can see where to place them. And, and he, uh, he and the interventional radiologist were behind a, a shield looking at my pictures. and. I saw them looking at each other and frowning. I could see them. I thought, what's going on? And they look down and they look up, they look at me. And and Dr. Doggett came racing out and he said, I just can't believe this. I can't believe this. We thought we had the wrong person for scans. They only removed 40% of your tumor, but it's 70% gone now. Even the part that they didn't cryoablate is almost gone. How does that happen? He said, what have you been doing? What have you been doing? How did this happen? There was a four-month interval between my cryoablation and the uh, brachytherapy. I, I said, all I've been doing IV vitamin C, mistletoe, low-dose naltrexone, uh, a host of supplements, off-label drugs, uh, exercise. I, I just started listing things. And he said, well, it's working. It's working. I've never seen anything like this. You don't need the Keytruda. Wow. It's almost resolved already. I said, well, then do we need to do the radiation? <laughs> We decided. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Since I'm here, we may as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's so, awesome. So what what caused the recession? I don't know. Uh, I, probably all of the above. Or maybe it was one of those things. I can't do a double-blind study on myself. Right. Who knows? Because we don't have the control group and the non-control group and that we just have what we have and be thankful. Yeah. 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 That's great. In these six years, how many different doctors and specialists and cities and centers do you think you've gone to? Well, in the last year, there were, um, I think I wrote down eight. Before that, I was just cycling through about the same five or six p 
people relatively locally because they kept telling me you have dysphonia, you have asthma, you, you know, they, they weren't telling me anything that would, in hindsight, I should have packed my bags and, and gone somewhere two years well, ago. Well, hindsight is, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's amazing because not everybody has the time or the ability or the funds or the insurance to do what you've done. And that's fantastic. How fortunate. I know. Very fortunate. I'm, I'm so fortunate. I am so fortunate. It, it is the perfect, perfect intersection. And, and of my native skills as well. I'm a, a natural researcher. I'm not a medical person. I do not have a medical background. I worked as a veterinary assistant through college. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't have a medical background. But I, my mother was a great medical researcher, also without a medical background. And, and she inspired all of this. I mean, she had dementia by the time I was diagnosed, but you know, her journey was one of taking charge of her own health. In 1976, when the doctor said, you have a lump in your breast, I'm gonna remove both breasts. And she said, I don't think so. And she packed her bags and went to Mayo Clinic where they found a benign cyst and removed it and never came back. Good for her, but because from what I understand, back in the 70s, that is what they did and women went along with it, correct? And she did not. Good for and her. And then she uh, got her sister up there as well, who had two brain tumors in a period of uh, five years, and she would have been dead without my mother's help. So being an advocate was something I was raised with. And being a researcher was something I just grew up knowing how to do. So do you know or do you think that this was hereditary or were there environmental issues or anything else that you think might have come into play or lifestyle? There, you know, I'm probably leading more of a healthy life than average person. I live in kind of a polluted part of the country. It's heavy industry around here, maybe in environmental pollution of some kind. But um, yeah, I live close to a train track that has the most train traffic in the U.S. Um, diesel fumes, pesticide. It, could it be something in my genetic background? I've got a lot of genetic anomalies, and, uh, but it's it's not inherited, and they they don't know of any cause of it. It's it's not caused by smoking, and I never did smoke. I think I read I was investigating recently, and they're starting to hone in on that. It's a mutation on the Notch one gene, something is not happening that's supposed to happen because on my mom's side a lot of people had cancer and her parents passed from cancer but it's not necessarily connected also i i'm from winnipeg manitoba up in canada and a friend of mine who's has stayed there has noticed that on my i think it was on the street that i grew up on he has noticed throughout the years since we were kids till now that he wonders if it was the electrical lines or something in the water because he's like basically it was and it was a predominantly jewish community and he said basically someone in every third house has had cancer mm. yep i was like that's interesting it is it is very interesting yeah and, and being being the age that i am is also a huge advantage to me i mean like i tell people you know i've now met younger people with this disease. And that's just heartbreaking to me. I don't have to try to live for 50 more years. I won't live 50 more years, no matter what I die of. <laughs> that's just not the cards, folks. But if you're 30, when you get this, you got to 
long ways to go with a, a, a kind of a nasty bedfellow, you know? Yeah, they they were pretty surprised because I think I was just 42 the first time I, I had it. And they were like, we don't see this kind of cancer in people your age, but you're young and you're healthy and you'll you'll get through it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So where where are you at now? Um, feel the best I've felt in 20 years, probably. That's awesome. Partly from brachytherapy and partly from what mm -hmm. you've changed in your own life. Yes, yes, definitely. Much more exercise, definitely a much greater commitment to eating carefully and right things for myself, getting rid of all the other health issues I had, minor health issues I had. I only met you recently. I have nothing to compare it to. I don't know how old you are, but you look fantastic. Well, thank you. I'm 68. You look fantastic. Thank you. I wouldn't have known that. Now, during all of this, who was your support group that you could turn to and lean on? Well, my whole family uh, was just right there for me. Uh, they were as freaked out as I was and wanting me to do something fast. You know, there's this pressure on people with cancer to do something, you know anything act move yeah and there's mm -hmm. hardly any cancer that is so aggressive that you cannot take a step back and gather your wits because nobody makes a good decision in fear it's not necessarily um, the right so thing i had to thing. kind of calm them down a little and remind them that i planned to stick around a long time and i was going to going to take my time and make the best mm -hmm. choices for me and once they realized that i was making progress at every step of the way everybody relaxed and just were there for me, checking up on me all the time. That's awesome that you weren't allowing other people, their fear or their excitement to get to you, and that you weren't just making decisions emotionally, that you took a step back and... Mm -hmm. Well, and and intuitively, I just didn't feel like what was being, the, the path I was being taken down was right for me. I just didn't, I didn't feel it, you know, spiritually, I did not feel it. My, my spirit wasn't, and, and every step I did take, I felt my spirit was saying, yeah, I'm here with you. Let's, let's go forward. We're going to, even something that's damaging like radiation, I've had a sense of my body saying, yeah, we'll cope with the fallout. We'll, we'll, it'll be all right. Move ahead. That's huge. I know that in certain circumstances, I become, I'm very sensitive and my, my intuition, I may not know why I'm making a decision, but if it feels right, it's the right way to go, and it's never wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And my husband said very wisely at one point, you know, I, I may be anxious and wanting you to take steps, but I know if your heart's not in it, it isn't going to help you. And now do you go every four months for scans or anything or blood work? Yep. Uh, my next scans are in December, and I have a wonderful laryngologist who's a specialist in just the larynx, and he scopes me beautifully, takes beautiful pictures. I send those to Dr. Doggett, and I also have an uh, oncologist in Chicago, in the University of Chicago, who's following me. I think he probably thinks I'm not doing the optimal things, but he's, but he's willing to follow me, which was not true of another doctor I had, another oncologist whom I said, you know, here's the plan I'm going to take. I've decided he offered IMRT radiation. I said, I've decided not to go that way, but could you give me follow along care anyway? And he said, oh, absolutely, absolutely. And when it came right down to it, he fired me. That's interesting too. And I mean, I guess it's, it's their prerogative, but you would. Yeah, he wasn't comfortable yeah. with what I did, even though he first said he was, then he wasn't. 
And I'd just as soon he'd part ways with me if that's the case, but it just kind of floored me. I totally get it. I've experienced the opposite, and I'm very fortunate because I have an oncologist who I've been seeing for years who's been looking after me. But sometimes I don't agree with him, and I go outside elsewhere, and he's 100% behind me. And he said, I want you to keep me updated. I still want to have appointments with you. I still want to do scans, but whatever you want, this is your decision. Yeah, I, I would love that. I do not have that with anyone currently. Mm. But mm. at least I have someone who is willing to order me the tests that I'm asking for. But he thinks I'm just uh, taking a palliative care approach. I saw it in my notes. I don't, it doesn't sound like that to me, but okay. I'm not doing palliative here. I'm doing curative, buddy. You're living. You're living yeah. life to the fullest. I don't, yeah. Yeah. I don't know where that's coming from. And, and, you know, I understand. I could have reoccurrences. You have reoccurrences. I have reoccurrences. I, and I'm ready. If I, if I need to do more things, I'll do more things. And I continue to this day to uh, pursue new treatments, uh, a new a new theory or a therapy that has come on the horizon now, something called ferroptosis. Oh, what's that? I don't know of that. It's a, there's various ways cancer cells can die. Uh, apoptosis is one of the ways that's programmed cell death. Ferroptosis is a way that they can die mediated by iron. Uh, cancer cells are iron avid, and there's a way that you can utilize that to get rid of cancer cells. I have, to, I have to look into that. I mean, we do have to remain vigilant. And one thing I yeah. ha had read from day one, way back in 2009, where they first gave me the diagnosis, and even back then, at least with a little bit of research they had, they said, normally, if this reoccurs, it reoccurs in about 10 years time in the lungs and the liver. And I think it was somewhere else. Well, mine was in seven years time and it did go to the lungs, but I was, ex I was waiting for it. Do you know what I mean? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were, you knew that was a possibility. Yep. Here we are. Okay. What do, what do we do next? Next step. Yeah. And, and I think that's why we always have to be on the lookout and I don't, I don't stop my research at all. I mean, there's periods of time where I don't do anything research-wise and just follow my plan. But right now, I've been in a big, big learning curve about this this new process. Um, Jane McClellan wrote a book called How to Starve Cancer, and she's from England, and uh, she's got a huge following. And uh, she uses off-label drugs, uh, some supplements, and now she's written an addendum to her book about ferroptosis. So I'm trying to learn about very complicated. Um, stretching my brain every day. Are these on Amazon? Uh, that, yes. How to Start Cancer is on Amazon. That's my go-to, so I'm going to look it up after this. <laughs> yeah, and you want the second edition with the ferroptosis section. Um, that I want to, I've never heard of, it, so thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, so there's always something new. We've pretty well covered everything, unless there's something that you feel that's important that you would like people to know. Well, I would like to say a little more about uh, the ACCOI group. I think it's and their and their sister group ACCRF. Uh, that's the Research Foundation for Adenoid Cystic Carcinoma, and ACCOI is the support group. They have just been everything to me. The, the, those two organizations, in terms of accessing all kinds of research and all kinds of uh, they have a physician list that is just second to none, and I, you know, would not see a doctor who had never heard of ACC. And that's one of the things, by the way, I learned at one of the doctors 
physician's assistant mentioned to me afterwards, you know, even though we're a cancer center, we hardly ever see this here. Wow. So where they have seen it and seen it lots and lots and lots, which unfortunately is not probably our local hospitals and is not even maybe our regionals in some cases. So that's where the ACCOI is, is huge in helping identify those doctors who have experience, legitimate experience with this. They are amazing. They are, are, are a wealth of information and you could jump on any time. At least one person is mm-hmm. going to answer mm-hmm. what you're mm-hmm. looking for. So, yeah, yeah, I can't I can't say enough good stuff about them. That's awesome. And I I agree with you. Thank you, Karen, so much. I do want to mention this story that you've written uh that you sent to me that is amazingly written and it is so well detailed and it's chronological of, you know, what you've uh, been through and what you talked about here. And what precipitated this? What made you write this, your story? Well, I felt like I wanted to share with others uh, that you don't have to always go with standard of care to get a good outcome. I think that there's a real fear that the medical community has about people who don't go with standard of care. But if you have a rare disease, what does standard of care really mean? I mean, I don't have common breast cancer or prostate cancer, where standard of care is very well thought out and very well known. Yeah, and funded and researched and... Yeah. yeah, and when you have a rare disease and you go with standard of care, what is your benchmark for that? 80 cases a year of which one doctor may have seen three cases in his entire career? Uh, that's that's not a standard, I'm sorry. And and I would I wanted to offer up to people that they don't have to lockstep with current advice. I mean, there there could be more. There almost always is more. What doctor has time to do the kind of research I've done? Like? And you know what? This is probably the best information, well, that anyone with cancer could get, but certainly with people with, with a rare type of cancer like us, you know, turning to these support groups and turning to people who are dealing with it. And, you know, especially if they're, they're new, they're going to have a lot of questions. But if... All of us are sharing, you know, our stories and open to, to help people. We have more information than than what's online and, and what they're, um, you know, providing us with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and the medical model is, let's face it, cut, burn, and poison. And I've been, I have had cut, burn, not not so much poison, uh, but and, and it was helpful. I'm not saying that it's not something. You want to embrace at times. You may need to embrace that, but there's more. I mean, I just want to make make that known to people that there there can be more, and it can make your life better, make your health better, certainly make you feel more in charge of things. I step back now when a doctor tells me something, and I step back to look at the bigger picture. Okay, is this doctor suggesting this because this is the procedure he's done the most of and does the best and this is the center that does this is what they do and this is where who's funding them or is he prescribing this medication because this is who gives the biggest kickback or whatever because it's a business it's a business there's a lot of things it is and they're trying to fill beds yeah yeah and there's there's a lot of things that are out there that i think if they can't patent them they buy them and lock them away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And and there's and there's research like that on on some drugs that have and and alternative natural supplements that have shown good efficacy that get bought out and they disappear. I I I wonder if you're going back centuries to indigenous people and so forth. You know, if I I I believe that just about every everything that ails us can be treated naturally with what occurs in nature, and it's um. <laughs> more and more it's being held from us. And I think indigenous tribes and so forth who lived a long time ago and had, had access to that and knew these things and what these compounds were and how to process them and so forth and how to apply them and if they were topical or if they were oral or, or whatever. And we're getting away, we've gotten away from that. Is there anything that you else that you would like to add for people listening today? I, I guess I would just say that this has been a real gift to me. I, I mean, I would not have met the people that I've met in the last year and a half. I would not be in the health I am today. I would not have the sense of groundedness and direction and purpose in my life that I have now. I, I wouldn't uh, cherish every breath I took. Uh, and, I, and I truly do. I just completed a bicycle uh, campaign of fundraising for children's cancer and also for uh, um, Brave Like Gabe, Gabe uh, Gabriel Grunewald died of ACC uh, three years ago, and she was a, a, an Olympic runner, and she died at age 32 or 33, I think, of, of ACC. And, and I did a bike and biking thing for that and for children's cancer. And I, I couldn't have done that a year ago. I couldn't have done it five years ago. I rode 200 miles in a month. I mean, that's not all that impressive to a lot of people, but if, if you knew how I was gasping for breath a year ago, <laughs> it's, it's uh, pretty amazing. This may sound simplistic, but I always say good comes from bad and bad comes from good. I've talked to so many people and guests on this show who are thankful that they went through their struggles and their trauma and what happened to them because it showed them what they're made of and they learned a lot um, about the world and about them themselves and how strong they are. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's no accident that I get a weird, rare cancer. I, I think I, I can be a voice for this. I think that um, I have the skills and background to speak to this and, and to help other people. And so did uh, the heavens send me something really strange so that I could, I could help others? I'll embrace that. I'll embrace it. There are no coincidences. The right person got this. Are you going to see, have, have you checked if you can get your story published somewhere? Well, I know that Pascal has put it on our ACCOI group site. I, I don't know what other venues there might be for for publication. I have not looked into it. I, I kind of have this philosophy. If people need me, they'll find me. Where is that? Do you have a, a website or something? Uh, well, I, I think it's in WordPress. Do you have a blog? Kind of. Yeah, I, I, can, publi I can publish <laughs> that. Yeah, I can, I can publish that. But I don't know who I'd publish it to other than the ACC community. I'm, I'm always open to learning about that. Have you thought about keynote speaking or anything? Well, if, if there's a place that I could do that, I'm perfectly comfortable speaking. I used to be a business consultant for a living. There you go. Well, I'm, I'm quite okay in front of groups. I think you have a, a third act, another career left in you. Yeah, yeah apparently so. Apparently so. Not one I ever imagined. <laughs> 
Karen, I'm so glad we met. I'm so glad too. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show. You're such a delight. You're such a force. You're such an inspiration to me. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. You, well, you inspire me too. You inspire me too. Oh, you're sweet. Now, I'm going to stop recording and we're going to say goodbye to the listeners. But when I stop, don't hang up because we'll talk, okay? Okay. All right. Thanks so much for being on Frankly Care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Frankly Kevin, spending some time with myself and my very special guest, Karen Kerr. If you'd like to find out more about Karen and some of the topics we discussed, you can find links on her page, Episode 9, Saving My Voice, A Cancer Story, on the FranklyKev.com website. And please feel free to comment and share. More episodes can be heard on the FranklyKev.com website, as well as Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, Spotify, and various other listening platforms. And if you'd like to help independent artists like myself bring you the content you want to hear, then go to the donate page at franklykev.com. Every dollar counts and your donation is greatly appreciated. Thanks again for joining us. And remember, live simply, dream big, be kind, love deeply, and laugh often. It may not be original, but it is true. Okay, you take care. Until next time.